Hello, everybody. Rick Manning, President of Americans for Limited Government here. We're talking about the, uh, what else, the Silicon Valley Bank uh, takeover by the federal government, as well as the Signature Bank takeover by the federal government. A um, lot, obviously, in the news, a lot of people, you know, not understanding exactly what's going on. So we're going to try to bring you the facts and, and how the government has the authority to do this um, under the under law passed by Congress, uh, for one, and try to help you see kind of what's going on and, and some of the risks, but also um, just what the what's really what's really happening. I'm going to start out by just doing something really simple. Um, and that simple thing is I am going to bring up the joint press release by the Board of Governors, the Federal Reserve, announcing this. Um, it's a joint press release of the Department of Treasury, the Board of Governors, the Federal Reserve, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. It was released uh, 6.15 last evening. Um, today, I'm going to just read it because I, I think this is really important for you here and it tells you a lot. It sets up the entire understanding of this. Today, we're taking decisive actions to protect the U.S. economy by strengthening public confidence in our banking system. This step will ensure that the U.S. banking system continues to perform its vital roles of protecting deposits and providing access to credit to households and businesses in a manner that promotes strong and sustainable economic growth. After receiving a recommendation from the boards of the FDIC, that's the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, and the Federal Reserve, and consulting with the President, Secretary Yellen approved actions enabling the FDIC to complete its re resolution of Silicon Valley Bank, Santa Clara, California, in a manner that fully protects all depositors. I must emphasize all depositors. Depositors will have access to all of their money starting Monday, March 13th. No losses associated with the resolution of Silicon Valley Bank will be home, will be borne by the taxpayer. We are also announcing a similar systemic risk exemption for Signature Bank, New York, New York, which was closed today by a state chartering authority. All depositors, that means the state of New York, um, all depositors of this institution will be made whole. As with the resolution of Signature Valley Bank, no losses will be borne by the taxpayer. Okay, so let's stop right there and just see what we're talking about. Um, I'll go to the Yahoo. The, the law, you, people are familiar with the FDI is insured up to your accounts insured up to $250,000 um, in the bank. And the challenge with Signature Bank, or with, uh, I mean, with uh, Silicon Valley Bank, was that they pay a lot of money that was there that over the $250,000 threshold. In fact, they uh, ranking by uh, Yahoo had Signature Bank, uh, SVB, sorry, Signature Bank was at 90% of deposits not insured by the FDIC. And Silicon Valley Bank had 88% of its deposits not insured by the FDIC. What that means is a 85%, in the case of SVB, 88% of the money that was in the was in the bank of the total assets held by the bank was not protected by FDIC, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. And hence, in people who had put money into that bank, we're going to lose about 90% of their money. Okay. That's, that's now, that doesn't mean everybody's going to lose 90% of their money. Some people are going to lose 99% of their money and other people were going to lose, you know, none of their money because their deposits were under 250,000. But that's that's the important piece here. One of the important pieces to know. It's also important to note that 
Citigroup is the number third on there with 85% of their deposits not insured by the FDIC. So it's a big, massive bank that's next in line in terms of the number of deposits not insured by the FDIC. So the, the, the precedent that's been set here by this decision is that that $250,000 limit on how much you're going to get reimbursed doesn't exist anymore for practical purposes. They just wiped it away out of whole cloth. They just said, okay, we're just going to make everybody, we're going to make sure everybody gets their money. Um, and, you know, it seems like a pretty cool thing. Everybody gets their money. Nobody loses any money, except for where does that money come from? But I, I'm going to go, this statement provides even more information on that. Um, we are also announcing a similar systemic risk exception for Signature Bank New York, New York, which was closed today by, remember, this is a statement by the Board of Governors Federal Reserve, um, which was closed today by State Charting Authority. Uh, no losses will be borne by the taxpayer. Shareholders, okay, those are the people who, who invest, you know, say, okay, I'm buying stock in the bank, and certain unsecured debt holders will not be protected. So if you, if like the bank owes you money, um, you're out of luck. Um, if you own the stock in the bank, you just lost, you just lost the complete value of that stock. Um, at a snap of a finger, the Federal Reserve, that's what just happened to those people. Senior management, by the way, they did nothing wrong. So they just, you lose. That's, that's their decision. Senior management has also been removed. Any losses to the deposit insurance fund to support uninsured depositors will be recovered by a special assessment on banks as required by law. Okay, so now what you learn is how are how are they going to pay for this? How are they going to pay for this $220 billion bailout? Well, they're going to pay for it by putting an assessment on other banks. And those other banks are banks that are, that are the largest banks um, that are going to get that special assessment. And the special assessment's going to make up is going to be essentially um, is going to be paid by you and me because your credit card interest rates are going to go up. Your the fees you have to pay in banks are going to go up um, because those banks don't have the money to just pay this. The Federal Reserve isn't just giving them the money to say here pay the fee. They they have to either borrow the money or they have to raise the money by charging you and me money for our accounts for the accounts we use on an everyday basis. So essentially, if you're at a Bank of America or you know any big bank, um, expect your fees to go up, expect there to be more costs involved for you. Um, and those costs are going to go up directly to pay off the wealthy people who got made whole at the Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, who had deposits over 250,000. Those are the people that's, those are the people being made whole, you're going to pay the you're going to pay the uh, increased fees at Bank of America and elsewhere in order to make them whole. So congratulations, uh, you get to pay. They're not going to call it a tax increase. They're not going to put it on the budget deficit. They're just going to charge you money uh, through the banking system and and hope you don't notice and you blame somebody else. Um, but let's, be, let's go ahead again. Next. Finally, the Federal Reserve Board announced that it will be make available additional funding to eligible depository institutions to help assure banks have the ability to meet the needs of all their depositors. So what does that mean? What that means is the Federal Reserve is basically going to give, is going to lend at a very low or to no interest rate 
to any bank that, that appears to have an instability, an insolvency uh, problem. And they're going to basically just pour money into that bank to, to keep it solvent so they can continue providing uh, their depositors the withdrawal requests. U.S. banking system remains resilient and on a solid foundation, in large part due to reforms that were made after the financial crisis to ensure better safeguards for the banking industry. Okay, that's bluff. That's just saying, look at how what a great job we did with Dodge Dodd Frank. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Those reforms, combined with today's actions, demonstrate our commitment to take the necessary steps to ensure that depositors' savings remain safe. Okay, so that's the Federal Reserve's um, statement. We ask about systemic reports. This is uh, an analysis of the uh, Dodd-Frank bill, which passed in 2010. And let's just see what the Financial Stability Oversight Council has. Okay, what they, they had first thing, that's the group that made this decision to basically shareholders, you get nothing, unsecured debt holders, you get nothing, but who gets something is the, people who were the share, the uh, depositors, okay? The depositors who were had more money than 250,000 in the bank. The council, that's a, this council, Financial Stability Council, Oversight Council, council on a non-delegable basis, so they have to do it, and by a vote of not fewer than two thirds of members then serving, including an affirmative vote by the chairperson of the council, which basically gives the president veto power. Um, shall designate those financial market utilities or payment clearing or settlement activities that the council determines are or most likely to become systemically important. Okay, so that means they can determine anything to be systemically important. Any business they can declare to be systemically important. And that's, so understand, that's, that's a, that's a um, pretty important thing. Um, let's see here. The so what they they also have, and I'm trying to find the specific thing here. Um, they also have virtual unending power. They can do. They can basically come in and take anybody's um, anybody's. Uh, business any bank and just say or other hey business. rick yeah I'm, I'm just here to help the thing you want to click on is the adobe pdf um that's in that's on your tabs there that will show you our analysis from 2010 that's okay. down the rabbit hole this is the document we published in 2010 that outlines the power to seize both financial and non-financial companies um that are under the dodd frank bill by having the ability to declare anything systemically important, they basically just took Silicon Valley Bank and put it into receivership right away. They took the signature bank and they put it into receivership right away. This is socializing the risk of those banks, but it's also taking over those banks for all intents and purposes, which is why the shareholders and the bondholders for those institutions aren't going to get anything because under Dodd-Frank, they're not supposed to get anything. But the by you can only guarantee up to two hundred and fifty thousand. In this case, we're going well above that for deposits that were over two hundred and fifty thousand. And if you go to that Yahoo piece, it notes that there was one trillion dollars of uninsured right. deposits. And that's what we're showing. That's what we were showing you earlier 
where it had the the percentages of deposits not insured. You know, that's when they added it up. It's this is Yahoo Finance today. Um, U.S. Bank. Yeah, you want to share your trillion. screen again, Rick? Yeah. Uh, okay. U.S. There banks we have well over one trillion of uninsured signature bank was among most among the right. most exposed, and that's out of so, about twenty-one trillion dollars. Okay, well, of... we'll get there, Robert. It's, oh, so we'll go. That's a so as Robert says, that is about you have about twenty trillion dollars under management. I'm find it. Um, this is the Federal Reserve of St. Louis. Uh, the chart for them. I'm going to make it a little bigger. The oops, wrong way. Bottom line is, if you can see this, you'd see that the the bank deposits. That's the 20 million line right there, or 20, 20 trillion, trillion. Line right there. And so the deposits um, in 2021 went up to about 20 21.2 trillion uh, in 20 quarter three of 2022, which is the last they've got. It was a 20.8 trillion. So. We have about a little over $20 trillion in the bank. Those are, those are uh, checking and uh, savings deposits and uh, CDs. So those are, th that's, what's in the, that's what's in the U.S. banking system right now. To put this into perspective, um, there were $225 billion approximately in losses, in, in, in money that had to be paid out made whole where people made whole were made whole so 200 200 billion versus 200 200 tr 20 trillion is about what one percent so it's about it's one percent a little over little over one percent of the total banking deposits were sent worse is that right yeah that is right um total banking deposits go ahead robert Yes, 1.1% of the banking system was uninsured, about $1 trillion. Um, and this is just savings. So this doesn't include, for example, retirement no, savings. One, one trillion over 20 trillion is 5%. But the no, no. But the two hundred billion out of one out of one trillion uh, that the uh, that that's about what you that's about five percent. Yes. So two hundred two hundred billion out of uh, out one trillion twenty three percent twenty percent. Yeah, twenty but north of twenty percent. Sorry, and then the one trillion out of uh, of uninsured versus twenty one trillion out of insured. It's that's about one percent. Yeah, that's that's about well, that's five percent. But Robert's Robert's really good with numbers. He's really bad at math. Um, it's a uh, it's five percent. the 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 key to this is when you think about it, out of twenty trillion dollars, twenty one trillion dollars under that total in the whole banking system. About one percent of it, two hundred and twenty-five billion, right? That's is now is is going to this is going to pay off these you know the depositors at Signature and uh, and uh, SVB Bank, and so when you think about the tax, how much money has to be raised in those other depositors in order to get make that money up, you're going to see the banks have to make another. You know, to pay the federal, pay this tax, um, they're going to have to come up with another with one percent more, and it's like raising their taxes one percent essentially. 
Right. And that's why the Fed just created a new bank term funding program where they're going to be offering loans up to one year in length to banks, savings associations, credit unions, and other eligible institutions um, in order to cover that money in the immediate future. Um, so the banks, they're going to have assessments that are levied upon them as a result of taking those loans to basically shore up the banking system right now. So the, fret, the Fed's going to be fronting the money to them up front, and then they're going to be paying it over the next several years. So watch for your fees to go up as these bank assessments are occurring. Watch for interest rates, which are already high. They could potentially go higher if we get another run on inflation, for example. Inflation's at about 6.4% over the past 12 months. And you've probably noticed it at the grocery store. Well, interest rates are going to get even higher than that uh, for things like mortgages and so forth as we try to pay off all of this inflation. That's how the banks actually make their money is, is doing that kind of stuff. So I'm going to show just one comment because I think it's funny. Um, Kathleen, Catherine Lindgren, a share song. Um, it's one thing, Catherine, I'm going to have to, my wife is a share expert and I get subjected to share songs all day long and, uh, and it's gypsies, tramps and thieves and, uh, and gypsies, tramps and thieves is a, uh, I think it's, it's even more while it may be uh, viewed in a negative light now based on a negative characterization of gypsies, it is, uh, it's probably a more, um, apt uh, word, set of words than even what you put. But yeah, it's a, uh, here from the taxpayer calling. That's a, that's pretty funny. Um, you know, the fact is that the, the one thing they uh, Congress did, and let's just be clear, Congress completely said, they said in 2010, we never want to have to vote on a bailout again. Why did they say that? Because they don't want to have to vote on a bailout. They, it's bad politics. They don't want to bail out rich people. So consequently, they passed it off to the, the administration, to nameless, faceless people you've never heard of. Because if anybody out there can name who the head of the FDIC is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to award you a prize. But it's a, without looking it up on Google, just off the top of your head. The, um, but they named, handed it off to nameless, faceless bureaucrats to make the decision. To, so they took the hit. And they said, oh, well, we're going to hide the tax. We're going to hide the tax by making it uh, a fee that the banks have to pay. And then we're going to, and then what the Federal Reserve does is they say, well, the banks are going to have to pay this fee pretty fast because this money's going out. So it's got to be there. So they're going to open up their, so they're basically going to then give those banks that money, which means they just effectively printed the money. And so now you have another $220 billion in circulation because the Federal Reserve will give it to them and then put it back into the, the system. So the system, Essentially, what happened was because of this run, $220 billion were effectively destroyed in our system. Okay, that money was destroyed. And what the Fed just is, they said, we're going to print the $220 billion and replace that, that money that was destroyed that got, that got beat. Let's talk about how they got into this mess, because the fact is, that's what a lot of people, I, I think it's the, there's some misunderstanding about how do we get, how did we ever get into this this kind of mess? And the answer is relatively simple. Um, when you have a, there was a, when interest rates were at zero near zero, it was free money to, to buy bonds at 2%. And the anticipation was the interest rate wasn't going to ever go above zero. In fact, it was going to go to negative interest rates, meaning meaning it was, they were going to ask, people were going to have to pay the federal, the government to actually get a bond. 
And so, which is what happened in, has happened in Japan and a number of other countries. Yeah, around you the use world. it to fight deflation when prices are collapsing like that. You, you, they went to a negative interest rate at the um, at Ben Bernanke's suggestion um, as a means of combating the deflation uh, as a result of very low fertility. You see reports these days that more people are dying than are being born in Japan. Well, one of the unfortunate side effects of demographic de- demographic decline like that is you're going to see a generally lowering um, asset uh, prices um, across the board. So what do they do? They print a ton of money, um, essentially. Uh, they do quantitative easing. All of the stuff that Bernanke ended up doing during the financial crisis, he had already trial run over in Japan. Um, and then, you know, they'll do even in Japan, they'll even buy stocks like they have the central bank actually trying to shore up stock prices um, in a bid to combat the deflation brought upon the low fertility. Yeah, it, it's and so where we are is a we have a I was just reading some of the comments. Um, so when the interest rate, so you had the the bond, people were buying treasury bonds and two getting two percent return on investment which is a really good, you know, 2% above the just guaranteed return. So, and because of the way the law is written, they're really required to hold a lot of treasury bonds. Okay. There's, that's part of the law. And And it's why the government, the government has a constant market for the debt that they have to print is because the banks are mandated. They have to buy it. So that's a a certain percentage of it. So they're holding, so these banks are holding these 2%, 2% uh, treasuries. And suddenly interest rates, you know, bounce up and they bounce up to 4%, 5% for those same treasury bills. So you got a two-year treasury bill and suddenly it's paying 4 or 5%. Well, what that means is nobody wants to buy the treasury bill that's only paying 2% because it's, because you're not making any money on it. So you have to discount the, you have to discount it to sell it. And in order or, to meet the or on your book value. So what book. happens is the assets under management, the total number of dollars that are held or said to be held um, by the book value of the bank goes down. And same thing happened with crypto at Signature Bank. They bought um, at a higher level and then crypto as the dollar's been strengthening has been coming down. Therefore, the book value of the bank comes down. Therefore, they don't have enough as, uh, enough valuation there to cover all of the deposits, which is why they got upside down. Right. And I'll show that chart in terms of the crypto, because mm-hmm. that's that this line here is currency, the red line. No, no. The red line is Bitcoin. The I'm blue sorry. Line the red line is Bitcoin and the blue line is, is currency. OK, it's the dollar, the value, the growth of the value of the dollar. So, so the you, dollar what you see weaker. is Bitcoin right here, you know, gets way ahead of the value of the dollar. But when the dollar was at its lowest point. And then you see Bitcoin basically shrinks back down and you have a little burst right here. But by and large, Bitcoin has been pretty flat um, from the if you take out the bumps, it's basically the same value today as it was um, with the start of this chart, Robert, um, in 2016. So but the currency is is way higher. And that means what do you have? What does that mean? It means just like with the bonds. If Bitcoin's not a, isn't uh, doesn't have a value return, if it's not worth as much, it is uh, vis-a-vis the dollar. When you if you bought it, if you bought a bunch of Bitcoin here, obviously you lost your shirt in terms of the value, the dollar value of it. Right. And that's a and so what happened with Signature is 
they made a decision that they were going to start um, trading uh, Bitcoin and I think Ether. They and they the, went further. They they allowed for deposits, crypto deposits at their institution. Um, and so when they were booked in, they were at the, they were at this level. But then the value of the crypto kept on getting lower as the dollar kept on getting stronger. And as a result, the book value of that crypto on deposit kept going down. And that's how Signature got upside down. So you could buy too many treasuries, too much crypto, and then interest uh, well, rates the are going up. And then suddenly the bank is underwater. Well, the challenge with crypto rather than deposit, rather than bonds, though, is crypto, since they didn't, they didn't own any crypto. They had depositors who had crypto. At least that's what appears to be true. Mm -hmm. You, they couldn't. What they couldn't do is they couldn't convert that crypto to anything else, and so they were stuck with it. And it was essentially an, a significant part of their portfolio, but they weren't able to convert. They weren't able to say, "I'm going to sell some crypto now so I can get money," because the crypto was just sitting there. There's no way to sell it. They couldn't trade it because it wasn't theirs to trade. Whereas when you have a deposit, your deposits in the bank, they're not sitting in the bank. They're either investing them somewhere or they're going off and uh, doing a they're, they're you know, buying a, a treasury bond or they're buying something with them to make a return on investment for them. And if you want your money back, then you sit there and you say, I want my money. And a, if you write a check, for instance, old school, you know, there's a reason it takes three days for checks to process. Because they're basically just getting the money. Okay. There's a reason right. we're why all waiting in line for our money. So we don't so, actually have $20 trillion of cash floating around the economy. Uh, most of it's deposited. And then when you want to move it to a different account, like if you go to your, say you have Bank of America, you go there right now, you're going to get your money. Um, but if you want to write a check to somebody, it might take two or three days for the money to basically get there. It's because they're constantly moving the money around. Um, so that we, you never have as much cash as there is deposits. So they can't, uh, if everyone went to the bank right now to withdraw it, you'd have a massive bank run and the money wouldn't all be there, which is why the FDIC under, uh, at Congress's direction under, under federal law, Congress passed a law, $250,000 is guaranteed. And that's about, uh, 95% of, uh, of all of all deposits are are they are insured. So even if we had a massive bank run, the FDIC would end up paying for it. So actually, you, there's no reason to go to the bank to withdraw your money because you're probably pretty much guaranteed. The people who were going to get screwed if the, uh, the Fed didn't do what they did in their eyes, um, although I think it's a bailout and they're socializing risk and they're basically risking the entire 20 trillion will eventually have to be a potentially, um, you know, insured or covered oh, under the systemic risk formula is that you could have it. That's the, that's the risk of insuring the uninsured deposits that $1 well, that, trillion. Well, dollars. Let's, be, let's be clear by, by breaking this down and by giving that exact part, by paying people the amount of money that's above the maximum insured. Okay. There, if you're talking about businesses, you know, business money. You know, if you're a big company, you spend more than two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Even mid-sized company, you spend more than two hundred fifty dollars of on payroll. So you have to have a, a significant amount of money in the bank just to do your payroll. It's a and, and so that was part of the challenge. A lot of the money that was in there was in startups, and they had and just very simply on, in terms of SVB, the money that was. Uh, in there, the startups have put in there, 
venture capitalists has, has slowed down the amount of money they were giving to startups because of the higher interest rates and uncertainty about the economy. And as a result, those startups, as opposed to being able to get new capital through second or third or fourth rounds of investment, said, we've got to access the capital we have to make our salaries, to pay for, to buy different things we need to buy. And so they were going to Silicon Valley Bank and saying, hey, we need to start taking money out. And because of that, Silicon Valley Bank uh, showed a balance sheet that was a, that was essentially, uh, what the heck? Why don't we go to that? Oh, I'm showing you what the what the risk here is, Rick. Be, by by guaranteeing the uninsured assets by declaring them systemically important, what they are actually opening the door for is exactly what Bernanke recommended Japan do, which is you start socializing more and more risk. Here's an example of the other savings account that everyone is probably familiar, which is their individual retirement account, their 401ks, their money that they have in these investment accounts. The Fed could come in, the Treasury could come in, this Oversight Council could come in, and they could guarantee these investments as well if they so chose to do so by declaring them systemically risky. So you have the 20 trillion of insured deposits or 19.8 trillion of insured deposits. They're on the hook for that no matter what. Now they've added 1 trillion to that. If you want to add retirement uh, savings to that, there's another 30 trillion. Um, There's just general stock accounts that are not necessarily retirement savings um, that could uh, easily be uh, brought into that fold as well. So when you start adding things to the mix, um, that are not the insured deposits. You get a, you, you just get deeper and deeper in. It's like uh, going all in in a poker game, saying we're going to guarantee everything. And that's the real danger here is that you get a vicious cycle that as the assessments on the banks rise, um, that they're going to need to guarantee more and more assets. And we don't know what the totality of the risk is, but certainly bank failures coincide with recessions. And this is definitely another red flag. Yeah, well, the, the, I think when you look at that, you're going to, you know, that um, effectively what you're viewing is the, if all the deposits are insured, then you've effectively taken over the banks because you've taken over all the risk. And if you, and who, he who owns the risk owns the, owns the asset. And so in many respects, this is, by taking over the the deposits, all the deposits, while it's in socializing it to the other everybody else, what it, what they've done is they've effectively through this move have taken over every single bank in America that is not a, that's certainly ones that are publicly held and that have FDIC insurance because you know, like I say, if you're gonna if the taxpayers have all the risk on this if the if the risk is if they're taking away all the risk of a of a of a bank making mistakes in management that causes them to go under then for all intents and purposes they don't exist and if you don't have any risk as a banker because the federal government's going to backstop you then you have no breaks on what on stupid things you might do so it's a suddenly they so by socializing the risk they've also made it so there's Apart, you know, they lose their jobs, but you know, once again, it, it's they, some of the accountability in terms of actions become less, much less so. Um, you know, Rick Bird says, "Blame somebody else." Do tell sounds like management, and you know, 
and that's an interesting question because I don't think we we know this yet, but it's pretty obvious. It seems obvious to me that that is. I, let's see. I think it is likely that at least in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, they were holding these lower those lower interest rate bonds, and they didn't want to take a small loss on them, so they weren't rolling them. They weren't selling them at a loss. They were holding them in the hopes that the interest rates would go down. And those and those bonds would then be useful and be more valuable, and so they weren't willing to take a haircut on the cost of the bonds, and so of course the way it works when you sit there you hold on to something, you know because because things always you know sort of like uh, when one thing goes wrong you get a snowball effect, because they didn't do that over time they had to sell them all at once. Right. This is exactly what happened during the financial crisis with the mortgage-backed securities. When interest rates were lower during the early 2000s, a bunch of mortgage-backed securities were sold all over the world. And then when interest rates rose, the value and prices dropped of the housing simultaneously. Um, all of the everyone who was holding the mortgage-backed securities, including central banks overseas, including the Bank of China, came back to the Treasury and they said, you're buying these back from us, basically. Um, and that was U.S. financial institutions, largely European financial institutions who were saying we're underwater, too. And so what the Ben Bernanke did was he basically took over AIG, which was right. in ensuring the mortgage backed securities against losses. And so AIG was like at the center of the financial crisis on the private side. Simultaneously, the Fed bought all of the mortgage backed securities from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. That were underwater. These now, those, underwater now those are two governments. Those are two that called GSEs. They are quasi-governmental agencies. And quite honestly, we advocated that they close down Fannie Mae altogether um, and just get rid of it and have the private mortgage system be reinstated. Because Fannie Mae owns about 90% of all mortgages. They, you know, you might get a mortgage with Wells Fargo, but Wells Fargo then immediately sells it to Fannie Mae. And Wells Fargo is merely the collection agency for the mortgage. They don't actually hold the paper. And so it's a, so they're nothing more. They, they're a fee collector for collecting the mortgage, the mortgage payment. So we, so we advocate getting rid of Fannie Mae because they essentially, through government policies, were encouraging people to make riskier and riskier mortgages um, based upon a, a desire to increase the number of people who were uh, lower income owning houses and the like. And so they did succeed in getting more people to own houses or at least owe money to owe houses, own houses. But they also succeeded in raising the risk factor in terms of people not, you know, if they lost their job, not being able to pay. And so that all, that that kind of snowballed. It was a series of, it was policy, which drove more more risky mortgages into the marketplace, combined with a, a combination of events related to lower demand hence crashing housing prices and rising interest rates which those two things go together um and as a result you know the taxpayer is left holding the bag in this instance the taxpayer isn't going to be left holding the bag it's going to be everybody who's got deposits in banks that are going to pay bank fees that you're going to end up having to pay this you're going to end up paying this through the bank so lucky you it's, it's right. And banks are currently sitting on about 620 billion of unrealized losses. Um, 
you know, from crypto, but um, largely from those treasuries. So you, what we're running the risk of right now is the banks coming back to the uh, to treasury and the Fed saying, we're losing money on these treasuries. Would you buy them back from us? We would really appreciate it if you would take these back from us. That's essentially, you could say that's what happened at SBB, at Silicon Valley Bank. That So there's this possibility that there's still a lot of risk in the system as a result of the higher interest rates. Um, and how many banks are going to, you know, kind of be brought to their knees because of that uh, feature that the value of their treasuries is much uh, lower now than when they had purchased them. But yeah, there's the headline right there. U.S. banks sitting on unrealized losses of six hundred and twenty million. The way it works, if they hold those uh, treasuries to maturity, they'll never lose anything. But the book value of the bank is that being brought down by these unrealized losses. And I think it is. Um, and then the other uh, piece. You so had people understand what an unrealized loss is really simple. If you if you have a if you buy a stock. OK. And let's say you buy, you know, 10 shares at, at ten dollars a share. So your stock, when you buy, it's one hundred dollars and the stock goes down to ninety to nine dollars a share. So you're bought. So you're now have ninety dollars worth of stock. Your unrealized loss because you haven't you haven't sold the stock is ten dollars, okay? So unlike unlike bonds where you eventually pay it out, so you end up getting paid out, you're and you're you're okay if you hold on to it. But if you need to get the money now, you have to sell now, which means you have to sell it for that lower price, which takes it from an unrealized loss to a realized loss, and that's what that's what happened to Silicon Valley Bank. Is oh, yeah. they convert, had to convert out a bunch of things that took what were effectively paper losses and made them real losses, and it's largely because they should what they should have done. And is it retro, you know hindsight is or twenty twenty, but I think what people would say they should have done is they should have taken their losses over time, and that way it would have sort of spread it out. Oh yeah, but the banks, but banks have a tremendous incentive to have a certain amount of assets under management and they can say that those assets are worth $620 billion more um, because they're unrealized losses. They don't have to count what they're worth now. They say, here's the assets under value because it goes fully, goes to, uh, goes to the end of term. They, that's how much it's worth. So they don't have to count those losses in, when they're talking about how many assets they have in man under management. What that means is they don't have to have as many deposits. They don't have to have they don't have as much cash reserve, depending on their assets under management. Is what allows them to determine what the cash reserve is um, under the law. So if you have a fraudulent because you're you're holding a bunch of losses, you're not counting them. You essentially end up then having less less cash on on hold that's that's easily accessible and. You know, hence you end up upside down sometimes. And right. That's and what it will work in reverse. As, as interest rates collapse during the recession, then the, the book value of those bonds should um, restore to some semblance of normalcy. But you'll note that banks were selling the treasury bonds for the past year and a half as interest rates were rising in many respects to raise cash to deal with the higher cost of inflation. Um, it happens every cycle. Okay, so here's Kathy Runblade. Run quit asking for money. If the bam, damn bank can't control the money, get the hell out. And damn it, quit blaming Trump. You were in office, not him. What a dumbass. Yeah, you know, once again, this is, you know, 
the Biden administration basically only knows one answer to anything. Um, it's Donald Trump's fault. And, you know, this doesn't have, has very little to do with anything related to uh, actions taken during the Trump administration. Um, their argument is that the stress test um, that the Trump administration was put under uh, that was changed in terms of what that the banking stress test with the thresholds were changed under the Trump, Trump administration, that that would have somehow solved this. The truth of the matter is it wouldn't have solved this. And all you need to know how you know it wouldn't have solved this. And I'm going to go back to that uh, little chart, the Yahoo chart. And I'm going to- The uninsured out. deposits, yeah. That shows the percentage of banks with uninsured deposits. City, Citigroup, Citigroup does not have, if you, they're, they're not yellow or red in the stress test. You know that. And yet they've got 85% deposits not insured by the FDIC. If that figure is what drives what would have created a stress test that you aren't that you're not uh, uh, that's unacceptable, Citigroup, J.P. Morgan, Mellon, uh, PNC, Truist, M&T Bank, Bank of America, you sit there and you look. These are the big. These are the biggest banks, and this is the top tw like twenty. So, if that was actually the going to be the thing that uh, caused you to not fail your stress test. You would have had a whole bunch of big banks failing their stress tests because of their the deposits not insured by the FDIC. The and challenge you know who didn't change the regulation um, after he took office to lower it back down to fifty billion, which is where the stress test uh, threshold had been under the original Dodd Frank. That would be Joe Biden. Joe Biden did not change the regulation to rate to lower the threshold for stress tests. So. Um, and I'm pretty sure they could have done more oversight as well if they had desired to do so via the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, but also the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. They, mon they are constantly monitoring uh, major financial institutions, and they declared these banks to be systemically risky just a few days after their book values had plummeted. Um, so the idea that they were unaware and that they would have intervened a month ago, they weren't, nobody was going to intervene a month ago. Nobody knew about this a month ago. Um, and so would it have turned up on a systemic risk test that was taken last July or something? Uh, probably not, because the problems that emerged with this bank happened so quickly that it, it happened overnight that you suddenly had this bank run occurring. It was not systemically risky until a bunch of depositors were suddenly withdrawing billions, tens of billions of dollars. I think Peter Thiel alone had directed about 40 billion of withdrawal right. um, from from uh, Silicon Valley Bank uh, once it was clear that the bank was underwater in a bid to, I think, protect their investments. Now, it turned out that the Fed and the FDIC were going to step in anyways. Um, but the, the point is, is that these things happen really, really quickly. So how, what are, what, what are the stress tests testing? Are they testing capitalization? Banks lend way more than they have on deposit anyways. I mean, that's just a that's, standard feature of fractional yeah, banking. That, yeah. So just understand the same problem. And, and just under, the way to understand that is when you, when you went and you got your uh, home mortgage, they didn't ask you to give hundred percent of the money. They asked you to give, you know, a, your down payment is, you know, three. 2.9 down, Rick. They're still doing yeah, it. Three, five, 10, 20% max. So the, the hundred thousand dollars they would have, they might've given you obviously probably, probably more than that. But the hundred thousand dollars, you're only get put in maximum 20, which means there's 
80% of the money that you gave them has been let out is new money. So that's how, how it works. That's how capitalism works, actually, is, you, is capitalism is building capital. Um, I just want to put Catherine's uh, statement here because this is a complicated issue. And, and we've spent, you know, we spent a lot of time back in 2010 dealing with this and 2009 dealing with this. And we've spent in 2008 and 2008 dealing with this. this is like the first issue Robert dealt with it with ALG. I was at the Labor Department when this first hit in 20, 2008. And um, one of the interesting things I can, I guess I can probably tell this now it's 12 years away, you know, a long time away. I think there's a statute of limitations on it. Um, we got notice from the White House. I got told specifically by the White House that we needed to put out a statement that basically said your, uh, your stock market investments are, at, you know, are risk, right? And we looked around, we said, no way, we're not doing that. We're not going to cause a, the stock market to collapse. That's not, that's not our job. We're not doing that. So we, and the reason we had something to do with that is because retirement, private retirement funds um, that go through employers are regulated by the labor department. And but so not we're kind of like, by the FDIC. we kind of ignored, we, we kind of ignored the, uh, the request um, thinking that they hadn't really thought it through, but uh, that's, but yeah, that, that, in that financial crisis, they were making stuff up man. they were trying to figure in, in real time and it was hard. Um, I did want to bring back, uh, uh, there was a comment in here that I think was pretty important. Um, the, um, on this issue, I, I, I you know, people always want to do something and the biggest danger and when they do something, what they typically do is have the government have more power. And what they're going to try to deal with is I'm going to flip to the crypto side on Signature because Signature Bank was a crypto problem. Um, well, that's different. Um, that's crypto. This that's is crypto. the analysis. The analysis. Okay. So the... The problem that they had on crypto, they said risky bet on crypto and run on deposits, tanked signature bank. Okay, their risky bet on crypto was this, in, in essence. They didn't invest in crypto, okay? So, you know, SVB invested in bonds and the bonds became had less value. And so they that's what got them into trouble. Signature bank did not invest in crypto. They held crypto accounts and allowed people to trade in crypto through their bank. That's what they did. So it wasn't that they invested in Bitcoin and Bitcoin went in the toilet. That's not what happened. But what ha the problem is crypto, they got a significant amount of their bank deposits, their assets under management were crypto. And those can't be converted to cash. Okay. Unlike there's no way to convert those assets to cash. So they have a problem. So they had a problem. And, and when they when they had demands on getting cash out of their system, they had a significant portion of their assets were not convertible to cash, to cash assets. That's how they fell into trouble. The crypto had nothing, investing in crypto had nothing to do with the with the with the collapse. What did have something to do with the collapse is the fact that crypto is a much less 
um, tradable commodity, and hence you can't convert it for a loss. Um, and that's because it's right. A they had a, the people who bought the crypto at a higher value. They have an incentive to wait for the dollar to weaken again. Right. Um, but that was weighing down signature banks. Um, I think the the value of the bank itself. Um, I think this might have been the comment you were looking for. There is less than nothing to bail out with. This is William Garrison. Who exactly is paying to whom? Who exactly is paying to whom and how much? So to answer that question, what the Fed has done is create a, a brand new bank term lending facility where they're going to front the money to the banks who will ultimately have to pay for the um, bailouts that are occurring right now. Right now it's $230 billion. So banks are going to be taxed essentially by the, uh, by the Fed and by the Treasury over the next few years while they pay back those loans that are going to be used to pay out those depositors right now. Um, and once that process is, or as that process goes on, your fees are going to go up, Rick. My fees are going to go up. Everyone in the chat, all your fees are going to go up. Um, so all the, uh, everything you pay for having a monthly savings account or a checking account or something like that, the, that that's the price that's going to go up. And the more stress that is put on the financial system as a result of those assessments, that could be the vicious cycle that strangles everything. Um, if, if, if it gets out of control, because we don't know how much risk there is in the system right now, how many banks are underwater because interest rates rise, for example, how many banks are overexposed with crypto and things like that. Questions that will be answered as the recession unfolds. One other, one other aspect on the crypto su uh, subject, I was talking about things that Congress could do that would screw things up. Um, and one of the things they could do is say, oh, there's this crypto problem. And we can't let banks be involved in crypto. In fact, what we're going to do is we're going to create our own digital crypto. We're going to have our own digital crypto. And we're not going to make we're going to make it the national crypto. And everybody's going to have to do and try to drive the what is a pro total private sector transaction and institutionalize it, have it be regulated under control, and effectively kill the institutional the whole value of crypto as an alternative currency. And so. And many of you, and I was on the radio this morning talking about this, and I, I think the concern is that they're going to essentially try to create a digital currency that's much more controllable rather than cash. And the way to stop a bank run is to say, well, you're only allowed to get out so much money digitally and you have to go to us and we're going to regulate it like we're putting a regulator on, a, on electricity flow in a car. And so it's a, and so the, what the, what a lot of people will do is they'll say, we need to control the currency better to avoid this kind of thing from happening. And the best way to control the currency is to digitize it and get rid of cash. And that is a something that they've been moving toward for a while. The Biden administration has been trying to develop a national cryptocurrency and create and effectively drive cash out of existence. And we know, we know the dangers of that. We see what happens with that when you're dealing with uh, when we see with social credit scores and the like and some of the things China does. So there's a... So I think the ship has sailed, Rick. I mean, the, the idea that they would just go the full nine yards and say that we're going to have uh, U.S. cryptocurrency as well. The Federal Reserve, starting in 2008, Ben Bernanke, the quantitative easing, these assets created out of thin air to, to buy mortgage-backed securities, but also to buy U.S. Treasury bonds. The idea that in Japan they're buying stocks with central bank money. Um, 
I mean, I, I think we're already down that rabbit hole. Um, we've been down that rabbit hole since the financial crisis. Well, but it, Robert, the modern monetary theory, we're on the cusp of negative interest rates. Once you get on the downside of that interest rate curve. Um, yeah, I think that th th things are going to get even weirder. We're even more well, strange okay. than what we're seeing I, I'm, now. I'm going to, I'm going to agree with that, but I, I think the challenge here is, uh, Congress is going to look to change laws is what they always do. And I would argue that the, that if they want to do something, they want to actually change the law. They ought to sit there and say that the, this control board cannot, cannot expand the eligibility for FDIC without congressional approval. I think that would be a reasonable thing to do and to limit the, they, they can deal with a certain scope of it, but you have to, you have to limit the power of this arbitrary board that sits there and says, well, I think there's a, I think there's a systemic risk with Exxon Mobil um, because, uh, because we've got climate change. So we're going to take it over and we're essentially going to say the shareholders all get screwed and, but we're going to take over all the assets. I mean, that's a, that's a very, uh, it's an extreme example, but the fact of the matter is that's what we're setting up. And that's no, I agree. I think that they have unlimited power under the Dodd-Frank bill to declare any company to be financial in nature, even if it's a non-financial company, so long as the Fed and the Treasury and the FDIC determine that it is systemically risky to allow that company to fail. And under that basis, they could declare every single company in America too big to fail, and they'll have ended up socializing all of them. You could nationalize the entire economy using that those provisions of law just by – you could pull up that statute again, just a two-thirds vote of the Financial Oversight Stability Council, and – and they can they can take over a company. They say, oh, that's systemically risky. Uh, those green uh, uh, windmill companies, those are systemically risky. We can take those over too if we need to, if there's any failures uh, with the uh, ESG funds and things like that. You have these huge, I pointed to the retirement investment companies. If they happen to get underwater for any reason, you could see retirement savings accounts um, but administered, uh, you know, by Vanguard or BlackRock, they could come in and they could say, you're systemically risky. We're putting you into receivership. They can just do what they did to AIG back in 2008, and they can just well, take it over wholesale. Well, and that remember, is very remember, dangerous. It's a very gotta, broad authority, and that's why we opposed it. The Congress has no role in this. You have no role in this. The president practically doesn't have much of a role in this. They don't even – the Treasury Secretary could technically disagree with the president on this, although he might be fired pretty quickly if he did something. Um, but the point is the president doesn't even have a role in this. None of the elected branches have any role in what could end up being trillions upon trillions of dollars of bailouts. This was a $230 billion bailout, but the implication was they were guaranteeing all of the $1 trillion of uninsured deposits. They can that, go much further exactly than right. that. Retirement accounts, stock accounts, you name it. This Financial Stability Oversight Council can pretty much declare it systemically risky, take it over, and then the federal government will be running a whole lot more than uh, you know inflation to the moon. The Just as an example, a practical example, when government motors GM got took over um, and were the and uh, their one. loans were all basically what happened is they said, OK, we're going to make it so you have a zero zero on your balance sheet. So they paid off the loans that they needed to. They said to they said How'd they do that, though, Rick. What, they what used, funds did they use? They used the they, trouble asset relief program right, that Congress TARP. had put into place. 
you know, the, 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 the group of money that the money that Congress had allocated for it, they did that. But note who didn't get paid. The unions got, got made whole. Their pensions plans, which are separate, but part of, but the company participates were made whole. The, uh, and they were able to keep their jobs and were protected. However, if you were, if you were a white collar person who worked for, a, for GM, your pension went away. You lost your pension. Okay. That, that claim you had on the company to pay you your pension went away. They said, nope, we're not paying that. So if you work for Delco, you lost your pension. And if you were white collar, that was a decision made by the government because they were picking winners and losers and the winners and they, and the winners were the people who were voting for the incumbent president and the losers were the people who didn't vote for the incumbent president. That is just the way they did it. And, and they went through court and the pet and the pensioners lost. They did not get their money. They were not made whole. Now what the real irony of the general motors one is General Motors, and this was told to me by one of their competitors, so I haven't fact-checked it, but I'll, I'll just I'll say it. Just so take it with a grain, at least a little grain of salt, because a competitor of General Motors told me this, uh, it, not in a showroom, but in a, in a in a setting that was we're dealing with financial issues and stuff, and and they brought this up. General Motors went with a zero balance sheet, and then proceeded to borrow a bunch more money. And they built state-of-the-art factories in China. They didn't rebuild the Flint, Michigan plant. They didn't, they didn't build plants in America. They built plants in China. And so General Motors has a significant, a significant footprint in China right now, um, all paid for by the debt they were able to get because they had a zero balance sheet because you and I bailed them out. So you want to get mad. That's that's the one that just drives me nuts. Bottom line is. This, this Financial Stability Oversight Council has virtually unlimited power. It's an and unlimited it a, TARP. That's exactly what a, our analysis from 2010 predicted this would happen. And I would um, encourage people who want to know more about this, go on to our website at dailytorch.com. Robert wrote an article this morning on it. Um, click on the article, and there's a link to the 2010 article in that, uh, uh, in that piece. You can read the original kind of... Uh, prognostication on it um but it's you want to just go over the bullet points really quickly rick because i think they're pretty um it's pretty easy to understand it's not a very long piece it's all the way to the right there the red one okay this one if okay. you go up yeah the bullet points are above it down a rabbit hole that's the one and then there's a bunch of bullet points right there okay there you go authorizes it to take over any company. You can declare a company to be financial in nature. You can authorize the um, Federal Reserve and Treasury Secretary to define what constitutes financial activities. So they could come into a company that was typically not considered a bank and then say, oh, you're systemically risky as well. So I think part of that was because they were trying to get a handle on the so-called shadow banking system. Um, that was uh, derived during the, you know, in the lead up to the financial crisis where these derivatives were being sold to insure the mortgage backed securities to the extent that you had 
trillions or tens of trillions or maybe even hundreds of trillions of liabilities that were being created in the financial system, but it didn't appear on the book value. So he wanted to be able to go in and say, you shadow bankers, you these derivatives, these are regulable as well, even if Congress hadn't delineated that they were regulable. So here they went to Silicon Valley Bank and they said, you're not even typically considered eligible uh, for a stress test, but now you're systemically important enough to be bailed out. Signature Bank, same story. So they can just, and they, you see how they abused the TARP authorities. That was George W. Bush during the Bush administration. At the very end, he opened the door of using TARP funds to bail out GM and Chrysler. Well, now, uh, now, so what does Congress do under Obama? They say, let's do, let's make that possible for everybody. And that's a really, uh, you know, terrible thing when you think about they could take over any company in the country under this basis, authorize FDIC, Federal Reserve and Treasury to put into receivership any company that is deemed to be in danger of default, that is, quote, predominantly engaged in activities that are financial in nature. Um, And we note some of the exceptions that were included under the law. Um, And it also allows for insurance uh, FDIC to levy assessments of on about 60 at the time bank holding and insurance companies totaling 50 billion or more in consolidated assets to finance what was going to be an unlimited, quote, orderly liquidation fund. That's just what happened here. The Federal Reserve and the Treasury and FDIC in the statement you read earlier, they're going to be levying those assessments, which means you're going to end up paying for it. Yeah, that's a, uh, you know, that's exactly right. Um, this is, I think we've ha- we've helped shine some light on this and I hope it's been helpful. Um, we're going to keep on this, obviously. We've been doing, working on this for 12 years, so we're not going to you know, stop working on it, 13, 14 years. So we're not going to stop working on it now. 15 the, years uh, for me, Rick. Yeah, okay. Well, it's a, it's the first issue Robert got to sink his teeth into and uh, and so it's one of those ones that uh, he, he'll never get away from. But the what we want to do now is we just want to, uh, you know, understand, folks, it's there's no reason to panic about this. It is a in fact, what the government did is they they essentially made it so you got money in the bank and say, you know, somebody in the government's going to they're going to figure out a way to pay for it. Now, that is fundamentally wrong. They're taking, you know, why would should they give you any any money if you're, you know, give you interest on payment if you're not if there's no risk, but you get down to it. That's what they decided. The big takeaway is when they discover that the, if this starts snowballing because of the rate the fees they're putting on big banks and they begin to have a and they begin to see stress oh, no, yeah that's that's the danger is that they're going to want to get up they're going to want to get on the right side of treasuries like if they're if they have these unrealized losses they're like oh no we can be put into receivership if we don't get rid of these treasuries hey fed would you mind buying these back from me like that'll be a backdoor bailout the fed going way back uh i think under the original federal reserve act uh more than a century ago they can purchase treasuries and they can buy them from the secondary market so i would watch for a lot of treasuries to be going out the back door right now so that they can get whole on their investment um you remember and if the, the fed and if the fed buys them at par value which is the the realized value at the end of the term then it effectively bails the the bank out of having that that 
difference of the two between two and four oh, yeah. percent. And that's exactly died. what they did exactly during the financial were, crisis. And, and there, so, remember the Dodd Frank provision by um, to do a audit of the Federal Reserve. Yeah, so I think we might have been the only ones who read it, Rick. But what did we discover was that the, even though the value of the mortgages had decreased in some cases by 20 percent, the banks that had bought those houses. So say it went from 300,000 to 200,000. The Fed was bu uh, buying those bonds back at the three hundred thousand dollar value. The banks got 100 pennies on the dollar. Anyone who had bought a mortgage backed security at the peak of the housing bubble, they were made whole. 100%. In the meantime, millions of Americans were losing their houses. Did they get to keep their houses, Rick? No, I, I, I don't recall them keeping their houses. No. Was, so you see kind of how this works. Signs, we had foreclosure signs. You couldn't go into a suburban neighborhood without, you know, every third house having a, having a for sale sign or a foreclosure sign um, on it. And it's a, uh, and it was a, you know, terrible time. So, just uh, but once again, as as you guys, as you mentioned, uh, somehow, you know, the, the banks, they couldn't let the, the systemic importance of the banking system was such that they were made whole. But the people don't matter. And so consequently, you weren't. Let's get out of here, Robert. Um, I appreciate everybody being on and we appreciate you hanging in. I know this has been complicated. I hope it's helped to find some way and get kind of unravel some of this for you. As with everything, uh, always look for, don't just take our word for it. We On these articles, we do put links, but you do your own research. But I'm hoping this gives you some ideas and some ways of kind of interpreting what's going on so you can be a smarter uh, consumer of government and smarter when you talk to your congressmen and senators about what's going on in this country. With that, I appreciate you tuning in and we'll be back tomorrow with another edition. Bye-bye.